All right, everyone. Welcome back to Filmcraft. This is a special Filmcraft because I am... I've just received a tornado warning. So if I cut out mid-episode, Latif's just going to carry the conversation. And hopefully it's not because I'm dead. Hopefully it's just because the power went out and I don't have any internet. So Latif and I can't record simultaneously. So if the power goes out, don't worry. Latif is there to gently guide you through the rest of the episode. (laughs) You're like talking about whatever topic. And we just hear... (laughs) 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 What was that? (laughs) Matt? Oh, that. That's just a tornado. Don't worry about that. You're like flung 30 feet in the air. As I yeah. was saying. <laughs> That'd be kind of hilarious, actually. This week, we're gonna, we've got a dual topic episode. We're going to talk about three kind of macro pieces of advice we would give to you if you came up to us and said, hey, I'm going to sh- shoot a feature next year. Very micro-budget. What are the three biggest pieces of advice you would give? And then we're going to talk about working on independent sets versus working on union sets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I guess with a potential impending tornado, let's get to it. So, Latif, I'm 18 years old. Um, I come up to you and I say, hey, man, you've inspired me. I'm making a feature next year. I've got 5000 bucks. What are your three pieces of advice? go well i guess the first one would be have a really tight script whatever the hell you're making um i'd say try to keep it short and try to keep the locations down um and if they're not you know planned out or if you're just going to kind of freestyle it then you might run into some trouble and then the next piece of advice would be I guess ask yourself what you're going to do on the film. I think if you're just going to direct it, then you, you're going to have some trouble there. I think you have to somehow do a couple more things um, than you want to. And that's just kind of part of making a micro-budget feature. In terms of that, like, you know, say this dude or woman is like, yeah, I am planning to direct it. And you give that piece of advice and they ask, you know, well, what other things? Like, give me a couple examples. What would you say? Well, it, it it depends on skill level. So I can't I can't be like you should also edit. <laughs> if you can't edit, yeah, that would yeah, be totally. a travesty. But say say you're you're going to direct it, but you've been editing, you know, a bunch of stuff for a, a long time, and you know how to edit. You might as well put on the editor hat and give that a go. Um, I know there's a lot of people who talk about objectivity, and you know it's good to have another person and stuff. But I'm like, well, that's one way to do it. You know, there's a lot of benefits of you editing it yourself as well. I don't think there's only one way to work. So if you can edit and direct, and you're pretty good at, you know, both of them to some extent, that's going to be a big benefit for you because you're not going to have to hire some editor, have to, like, rely on them 24-7 to do anything. Um, obviously, it takes some pressure off to have someone, but if you can do it yourself, then you kind of save yourself a lot of trouble there. Yeah, and, I mean, that comes down to... Uh a strict creative thing too like if you if it's your first venture out maybe it is best to have as few cooks in the kitchen as possible and then also you know if you don't have to hire an editor you're going to save a ton of cash which you can put towards something else yeah and it's a big position to fill too you know once you go into post-production the editor is really steering the ship the director is just there for the ride (laughs) 
<laughs> pretty much um so in a way like I, I think if you're able to take you know another position on that requires a lot of leg work then you'll you'll be in a better off position because you can really control how things go down where i've seen like in independent features small first-time features um a director will only direct and they'll you know maybe they'll do some like other small things on the side but a lot of it would be relying on other people to finish the work which can be frustrating because sometimes people just take way too long um you know don't respond or they're just not enthusiastic enough especially if it drags on too long and you can run into some trouble there so if you're able to like take on a little more responsibility um that gives you more control over the speed or the quality of the project and i think it will be in in your benefit in the end yeah and another aspect to that too is when you hire these people, especially the, you know, I'm not talking about like grips and gaffers and stuff like that. I'm talking about people that inform story creatively. You need to hire people that are very much on the same page as you. So if you're like, I just want to direct, that's cool. But the thing you need to remember is you have a vision for this and hopefully that vision has come from the script. So when you go to hire an editor, that editor has to see it the way you see it. So you could run into the pitfall of like you hire an editor and you're kind of inexperienced. So you don't really have the foresight to ask a question of how do you see this? You know, this is how I see it. So you just hire someone out of the blue and they try and cut your, I don't know, love story, like a mission impossible movie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's just taking the time to get the right, uh, chemistry as well because a lot of the times like the tendency is to hire the cheapest person yeah um and you know sometimes the cheapest person is like a, someone young and excited to to work on it which is nice but sometimes the cheapest person is like someone who's literally at the bottom of the barrel because they haven't got anything better because um, they suck in a way <laughs> yeah. uh and i guess my last piece of advice would be um before you shirt your sh- to your feature shoot some short films is literally like the perfect way to practice because you're doing everything that you're supposed to be doing for a feature or at least you should be you're going to be shooting actors and locations and costumes and makeup and you have to write the script and you're going through the whole process of filmmaking but in a very small package and you still have to do it properly and I think that's like the perfect way to practice and you can make your short film five minutes or you can make it 20 minutes. But I think if you aren't at least attempting to shoot a short film or something in that manner before you shoot a feature, then you're going to run into some trouble. I would not advise someone to just jump straight into a feature without even attempting to make some short films. Yeah, that's pretty fair. And like, it's something that I've actually thought about a decent amount. So like I was involved with short films before we, you and I went and made party stories and what we don't say, but as far as, you know, having a short that I had written be brought to life by me or someone else that never happened. And I had never directed a short before. And I often wonder like if I had done that, you know, say we pushed party stories by a year and we shot some whatever shorts, you know, would that have made party stories any better? And subsequently, would that have made what we don't say better? And, you know, that just continues on down the road. It's uh, 
it's a question that's never really left my mind, even though I really don't like thinking about those what ifs because I find them very, very useless because obviously they didn't happen. But yeah, in terms of just going out and trying to learn bits of the craft, you know, it's hard to say don't do it, even from someone who didn't do it. Well, it, you, you still, we still did versions of that. Like, I don't mean it has to be a short film because we shot, um, you know, like a promotional commercial thing for like a gym company or oh, whatever. Yeah. You know, we shot that little web series episode. We did two days mm-hmm. of that and we did a couple of days on, on your short film that we never ended up finishing. But those are all in its own like small experiences of the experience of shooting something bigger if you combine those in terms of time and the actual things we had to do they're very much in line with when we made the feature film so technically that's true you did have that experience but it just it wasn't something at the end that you could hold up and say look what i did because all those projects kind of disappeared (laughs) but um it doesn't have to manifest in like a short film at the end i mean you could shoot a wedding video and that could inform how you shoot your feature I, i don't mean that in a bad way because wedding videos require you to be extremely fast on your feet. Otherwise, you'll fuck it all up. You know, if you miss mm. the first kiss, it's over. The couple's going to hate you, whether it looks beautiful <laughs> or not. You know, I've, I've been at wedding wedding shoots and stuff early on when I was just like trying to get some cash for some work. And I've been at weddings and there's some crucial moments that if you miss, then you're screwed. And there's no ad guiding you or anything it's like a documentary you have to like figure out where to put the camera find the best angles make sure the lighting is okay and 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 get the first kiss and focus and all that shit but that requires a lot of thinking um and even that's something that will inform your feature it's not a short film but it's still work that's in some ways tied to what you got to do so you know when i the, the third piece of advice when i say go shoot a short it's really go shoot some stuff you know that that's going to help you when you make your film yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And that actually brought a really interesting question to in my mind. Um, so you mentioned like, you know, we did those few things. So I had some onset experience. Mm. And then my mind immediately went to like, what do you think is more valuable having that onset experience? Or say you were a writer, and you had a director come by and make two of your shorts. So you got to see your words transcribed onto the screen. And hopefully you got to sit in on the editing to some degree. So like, what do you think's more important? And, uh, you know, they're both very, very important, but if you could only choose one, like having onset experience or having the experience of seeing your work be realized on the screen and learn a bit about editing, because, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. But what I have said for the longest, longest time, the biggest thing that I took away from party stories is the beast of editing. Like it's so important, so much changes and just seeing the words you wrote or not even the words you wrote, just the words that you were trying to bring to life through the script on screen and how you chop it up when it doesn't work and how it, when it does work, why it works. You know what I mean? Mm. You're talking about if you want to be a director, right? Like if you want to be. Yeah. 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 Um, I think you know, that's tough. I think early on, it helps to know the editing first. Um, because you can show up on set as a first-time director and still kind of lean on all the other crew members because they might be more experienced with you and they might have worked with first-timers. 
Now, there might be some people who take advantage of that, but in a way, there are a lot of people that you can rely on. But in, in post, and when, when you're editing, it's just you and the director, or maybe just you and the footage. Um, and you have to really learn how that affects the, I guess, the, the layout of the story. And it's and it, it's really a huge revelation for a lot of people when they see how much happens in editing. And I mm-hmm. think like you could shoot something poorly and not get enough coverage, but really do some magic in editing and craft it together that's in a way still makes it work. Um, so editing is just this giant, giant piece of the process that I think is sometimes overlooked when you're on set where there's so much it can do to really get your stuff to work. And I think it's important for writer, writer, directors to understand the importance of editing. You know, some of my favorite filmmakers are editors. They edit their movies, you know, like the Coen brothers edit their films, you know, Mm -hmm. Joel, Joel and Ethan, they edit their movies together. Um, you know, Alfonso Corona is an editor and he edits his films as well. You know, he works with other editors sometimes, but that's something that he does. Like, that's something that he's very intimate with. Even Martin Scorsese is um, so intimate in the editing process with his uh, editor, Thelma Schoonmaker. And then you just kind of see the pattern of, like, if you want to make really strong films, you have to kind of be intimate with the editing process. It doesn't mean you have to edit it. But it means you have to really know the ins and outs of editing. And I think in the long run, that's going to be so beneficial. Because you get used to being on set very quickly. You know, you could mm-hmm. shoot one feature and then you've you figured it out. But you're going to learn about editing through every project you make and, and how powerful like little things can can be. So I think editing is really going to be a huge kind of revelation early on. It's going to change the way you write as well. But... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting that onset experience and seeing your thing made into a, f- a film for the first time, that, that will blow over pretty quickly. Yeah, that's pretty fair. And honestly, I think editing is such, so underrated because you could take The Godfather, like the footage from The Godfather, and like give it to me. I've never, I've been with you as we've edited our movies, but I've never like solo edited anything. If I was to recut The Godfather, I could make it into the biggest pile of shit you have ever seen in your entire life like if you have a bad editor in my opinion your movie's done like unless you hire a bad editor then say this is crap and give it to a good editor um yeah just the power of editing is immense 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 and i think it's something not a lot of whole not a whole lot of people think of even when you know, we shot what we don't say. We wrapped it. I'd have buddies be like, hey, so when can I see it? And expecting me to be like, oh, you know, like next week sometime. It's like, no, like a year. This is, we're about to dive deep into this. And this is a lot of work. There's a lot that goes into this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very, I think, you know, it's it's seen as a very kind of like push button job from the outside. But I think yeah. the, the more you do it, the more you start to see how intricate it is. And there's there's this kind of weird mental thing that happens with editors when they're looking at footage. They just kind of have this instinctual feeling of when to cut and when mm-hmm. to put in and out points on footage and, and, when, and where to drop them into the sequence. And it's just something that there's so much happening 
um, inside the head of the editor that isn't explained. And all that stuff is being like transferred between his fingertips and the keyboard. It's so instantaneous in a way. Um, I think when you're editing, it's almost like when you're sewing or, or doing something super manual. Um, it requires so much uh, skill and precision, but at the same time, everything is done with so much um, intention because uh, it all has to be tight. Otherwise, the whole thing will kind of fall apart. You know, it's like a, a pair of pants sewn poorly. If like a few seams are off, it's all going to come apart. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. And you know, like one thing I've grown to hate, I'm sure you've heard this, this people saying, you know, editing's like a puzzle. It's putting the movie together like a puzzle. I'm like, I, I understand where you're coming from when you say that, but no, that's wrong. Because with a puzzle, there's one way to put it together. Mm-hmm. Puzzles don't go together numerous ways this piece doesn't join that piece like if you try and connect two pieces that don't go together unless it's the hardest puzzle in the world it's pretty obvious those pieces don't go together and in editing there's a billion ways you can edit any movie ever so it's not a puzzle it's like if you're like i want to go to la i was like okay cool and then i flew a plane to like 12 hours outside of la I destroyed the sun and I gave you a flashlight and I said, find LA. Like, that's to me what editing is like. It's you, you finding your way. And sure, you have little things you can kind of go to, like, oh, I hear the sound of a car. There's probably, hopefully that's a highway that goes there. But it's you finding things in the dark, largely. It's not putting together a puzzle where there's only one outcome. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a million ways to cut a scene, but there's only, like, two or three that are really effective um you've, you've got to take a look at everything and really make choices and decisions on how you're going to do it and ed- editing informs the processes that come before it you have to know how to you know shoot the scene based on how you're going to cut it together you know are you going to use a wide shot are you going to use the close-up and all that stuff but you know we've really delved into this as the third piece of advice but yeah, um, actually, this feels like a fourth piece of advice, but I guess that's important too. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, those are, I think that's pretty, pretty important stuff in any case. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right, so yeah, we'll move on from that. Um, if I'm going to give three from a different perspective. So I feel like your three was, you know, the, the making of the movie, and I'm going to do um, a bit more on the far end of it. So... If someone was to come up to me and say, you know, three pieces of advice, the first thing I would say is don't make your movie a straight drama. Um, because going through what we've gone through with distribution and just kind of studying the way that film is in general, especially with no budget films, um, straight dramas are the hardest to sell. And I think they're the hardest to program in festivals as well, because I bet you if you're a film festival and you get a thousand submissions, you know, feature submissions, I would bet you at least 60 to 70% of them are drama and fairly, you know, just drama dramas, not a, this one's kind of a thriller. This one's kind of this, this one's kind of that. And I say that from a perspective where we made what we don't say, which is a drama, but it is also a love story. And even when we got our sales agent, we got our distribution deal and, you know, hopefully going forward, if it sells more than we think it will, the things that, 
these people told me are like, look, it's good that you made a movie that has an audience. It's a love story. People are going to want to watch this. And even the sales agent and the distributor, they're like, we get people that just bring straight dramas to us all the time. And even if they're good, it's a matter of how are you going to sell it? You know, dramas, straight dramas are not the easiest to sell. So if you came to me and said, you know, what should I do? Don't make a straight drama. Make it some kind of genre-esque thing. Like we did a love story drama. You can do a horror, thriller, action. Just do something that isn't straight drama. That'd be the first thing that I would say. The second falls along those lines as well. Um, it's think about what you're going to do with it after. So genre is great for getting it out there. Um, love story has a built-in audience. Thrillers have built-in audience. Horror completely has the biggest built-in audience, I would argue. And then just say like, okay, I'm planning on doing movie X. Do I picture this being something that could go out theatrically? And be honest with yourself, don't be heads in the clouds with this. Could I picture this being theatrically? Do I think distributors would want this? Do I think sales agents would want this? Do I think an audience would want this? Would I want to sit there in the theater and watch this? I think that's really, really important. And third is... I think a lot of people, when they think of making a movie, they dive into pre-production and production. And I see this a lot. I was talking with a filmmaker the other week where they were like, I, I want to make this movie. Here's X, Y, and Z. And I gave them some advice. I answered the questions and I was like, who's editing it? They're like, oh, well, I haven't thought that far. I was like, okay, then stop everything you're doing right now. And it's great that you're doing things to build towards shooting this thing. But you need to find out who's going to be in your corner and working on your team when you go through post. And I've seen it tons of times where people are like, I have $5,000. I'm going to spend $5,000 shooting. It's like, okay, well then who's going to cut it? It's like, Oh, I'll worry about that when we get there. And that's why you see these Kickstarter campaigns that are, we've shot this movie. We just need some money to finish it. And you know, I, there, it happens where you have a movie, you run out of money and you can't get through posts. So really you don't have a movie. So figure out who's going to be doing what in post. Obviously, you can't get every little thing dialed in before you shoot. But the more you have, the better shape you're going to be in. I think that one is, in my opinion, critical. And people overlook it all the time. Mm -hmm. That's two, right? No, that'd be three. Uh, so the um, don't make a straight drama think about where it's going after you finish the movie and mm -hmm. don't go into production without knowing who's going to be doing what in post or at least try not to. Oh, okay. Yeah. Actually, that's an interesting question for you. So you do a lot of editing. How often is it people come to you and they're like, we've shot this thing. We need an editor compared to we're about to shoot this thing and they want to get an editor before they even shoot it. Mm. The first feature I went on, they came to me before they shot it. So they're looking someone to edit early on. Okay, that's good. Um, there's been short films where I was asked to come edit beforehand. I'm trying to think if there's any of like the later on. Well, there, there's one feature I came and did some work on in post. I was doing color and some like very light VFX stuff, but. I ended up kind of taking the role of the editor because there was no editor at that point. <laughs> the feature was <laughs> had been being made for like five years. And I think out of like really unfortunate circumstances, the editor passed away. Um, uh. And 
there was no editor and the film was kind of just like hanging around. So I, I came onto the project and finished it and did a lot of the editor duties for a while. Um, so, you know, obviously that's like a strange scenario, but most of the time, I think, at least in my experience, it's been beforehand people have seeked out an editor. But I do think... Oh, that's great. I do think you're right about, like, there's a lot of, like, funding projects where they're like, please, we need to finish our film, and they don't have, like, a post-budget or something. And, you know, that that's, like, a huge mess. Uh, it, even for our film, you know, for what we don't say... I think, like, one of the reasons we're able to make it is because, you know, two of the key creative roles are covered. You know, I, I did the cinematography and the editing and also the, the you know, the post-color grade. So I did, like, three pretty big roles where on an, another film, like, you'd have to pay three different people to do it. So we saved a bunch of money there. So, um Again, I guess it goes back to like you know the advice I had, where if you're able to put on more than one hat, it doesn't have to just be you. If you're able to find, you know, a cinematographer who likely a lot of them will do some color grading, then ask them like, hey, if I give you a little extra cash, will you grade your own footage? Some of them might be really enthusiastic about that because they're afraid of like some, you know, newbie colorist or some editor fucking up their footage um <laughs> so you if you're able to combine jobs like that uh with people who are in in ways qualified to do it then you might be saving yourself a lot of headache yeah totally i was a guest on a podcast which i think it, it'll come out in a week or two um it's a filmmaking podcast and when we did a and ask me anything on Reddit, they saw it and they got a hold of me. So I, I guessed on their podcast mm -hmm. and they were like, okay, how did you make this movie for 6,000? And I said that exact thing. I was like, look, here's a big thing that saved us an immense amount of money. Um, I wrote, well, co-wrote, directed, and I was 95% of producing on this. Latif did cinematography, co-wrote with me, edited and did the color. So like between Latif and I, we have... Not all of the jobs between us by any stretch, but as far as the creative bit of it, we have so much of it covered just between the two of us. And since we were pretty much on the same page for everything, it's, you know, it wasn't like if I'm just a director and I hire a few other people, they come in, they have their opinions last minute. Like we really worked on this for a long time and we encompassed so much of the creative spectrum that it really made it easy, easier and a lot cheaper in that sense. Mm -hmm. that, that's kind of like one of the secrets, I guess, uh, to do something really small. Like I, I know so many directors who will edit their features just because they, you know, they know they're going to save a bunch of money in that process. So it, it's, it's kind of like uh, in a weird way, I, you know, we maybe, I wish I guess we could have talked about it sooner, but like that was like one of the big things where we had to like take a lot of responsibility and do a lot of the work. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's kind of crazy looking back on it, eh? Like to me, it seems a more daunting task looking back at it and thinking like, wow, we really bit off a lot compared to in the moment, like when we were setting it up. It's like, yeah, we got this. 
Yeah, but, but I guess that's a good segue into our, our next topic. Um, yeah, it's not. I, it's not about because I know we mentioned earlier. It's about like working in one versus the other. I, I guess we can't really do it that way because I've never worked in on union projects. Um, but I, it's more about talking about the benefits I've got staying away from the regular union work. Yeah, yeah, totally. And on that note, like, I think you're going to have the most to say about this. So why, why don't you kick it off? Yeah. Uh, really, I was thinking about, like, even yesterday, I was sitting under a willow tree. This is going to sound super stupid. I was sitting under a willow tree. <laughs> if it starts with, I was sitting under a willow tree, the podcast just like, you can see the audience retention drops to like 3% or something. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sitting there. It's like right at, right around sunset, low evening sun. This willow tree is like blowing in the wind. I've got like the camera set up and I'm s- sitting in front of it and recording myself because I'm doing a camera test. And I'm thinking to myself like, hey, this is really good experience. You know, this is really good for myself because I'm doing these t- camera tests just so I can see what I can get out of the camera during this time of day and want to get the lighting and all the angles right and i've got all this footage and i come home that evening and i upload the footage into the software and i start grading it to see how far i can stretch things and i'm thinking you know this is the type of stuff i'd I'd never get the opportunity to do if i was in the union because i'd just be in one position kind of doing one thing and I, I wouldn't even get a glimpse into the other kind of departments. You know, if I was working as a camera op or a grip, I'd have no input or, like, insight into, like, what the colorist is going to do. You know, or if I was working, you know, as a DP, I wouldn't really, you know, get to see what the editor is doing with the footage and how they choose, um, you know, the angles to use and stuff. Whereas when I get to dip my toes in every department in a way and really take it through recording all the way to like uh, the final product I get to see every part very intricately so I I get very intimate with the filmmaking process um, holistically in a way so I'm not worried about like oh you know I've shot it hopefully the editor doesn't pick the ugly take or hopefully the colorist doesn't screw this up or, you know, maybe the director, you know, completely, like, cans the scene or cuts it improperly or something. Um, I, I'm in control of all of these things. And I think uh, just, like, sitting under that tree, I was thinking, like, this is really kind of good way to learn filmmaking because I'm completely responsible for the final image, <laughs> you know? Like, I can't blame anyone if this goes wrong. You know, if it looks bad, if it's underexposed, if it's overexposed, if it's, like, out of focus, if it's framed poorly, if the acting is, like, super awful, it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a way, it's it's a little stressful, but I don't have to answer to anyone as well. There's no company funding the project. There's no men in suits that are going to, like, beat me up if it looks bad. <laughs> It's it's really like if it looks bad I can just like throw it away and start another project. I've I've given myself all the responsibility but so much freedom. I can do whatever I want. I can make the mistakes I want, but I can also creatively do whatever I feel is you know closest to my vision. Um 
I'm free from like the tyranny of the uh, of the giant film industry. I don't have to worry about anything. Um, and I, f- I thought this was really a great way to really learn filmmaking in a in an incredibly intimate way. Because um, I'm also thinking about like time of day, the location, you know, the actors, you know, what the sound is going to be like when we shoot. Um, and these are all responsibilities that like you would deal, you would deal off to like different people in the film crew. And now I've taken all the responsibility, but in a way, the more I know and the more I feel confident about shooting, the more comfortable I become and it becomes less stressful. It almost becomes like, you know, I've kind of covered all my tracks. Now I can just shoot the film. I don't have to worry about anything. Um, obviously, I don't know the ins and outs of working on union sets because I kind of avoided that. I, I had a natural instinct that I wouldn't enjoy, like working on a grip on, I don't know, uh, super bad or something, or <laughs> working as like a electrician on uh, Planet of the Apes or something. Like I, I don't think that would yield the same results like obviously i'd learn how to set up a sea sand really well or learn like the names of the lights and stuff like that um <laughs> and, and working a little quicker and safety protocols and all that stuff obviously that stuff's important but i'm talking about like as a independent filmmaker if you're just trying to develop your voice and your vision it's just so much more beneficial to go and do it yourself you know they have that thing where interviews directors and stuff will talk about like you know you can just go get a camera and go shoot you can just edit on a laptop a lot of people like scoff at that but in a weird way i was like you know that's right <laughs> you really can a lot of the times people are just like too afraid or too lazy to do it um i think it's more fear than laziness uh just because you do take on that responsibility but it's really true you just pick up a camera and go shoot anything shorts whatever just go shoot yourself shoot your friends talking and that will eventually like lead to stuff like you'll start to get an eye for framing and camera stuff because working as a grip you're not really developing your composition um you know as a as a camera person or as a director like the way you see things um you're really just doing manual labor in a weird way but if you know if you're working as like a you know a clapper loader you know the or someone slating if it's like digital stuff, um, you're getting like an intimate process of protocol and maybe you're seeing like a lighting setup from the DP or like how the camera operator moves and does stuff with shots, but it's still very much like not close enough to the process. You're, you're seeing how other people do it. And I think that's helpful in some ways, but it doesn't really inform how you do things. You still have to get behind the camera. You still have to like, make the decisions on lighting and in a way i'm i'm happy that i didn't go through the union route because all the choices i've been making have been my own choices they're not influenced by seeing like another dp set up a lighting um rig or or another uh director like frame his shots and stuff like every choice i've made has been my own choice so in a way i'm really developing the way i make films without being influenced too much by other people just because I see one DP do something this way and think, oh, that's the right way, and I do it that way. Now I've just taken like his way of working and called it mine. But if I do things my own way, and I let the influences come from 
you know, actual films that I watch and stuff. I'm trying to emulate a result. I'm not emulating the process. And I think the process is something you have to build on your own. So, you know, that's kind of my, my take on like staying away. There's so many benefits to the union too. You know, you get paid properly. Uh, the work is consistent. The camaraderie of working on set, you meet so many great people. Um, you know, there's healthcare benefits and stuff. Obviously, working in union protects you in many ways. But I, I know that it can be a drudge. Like, I've worked on sets that are bigger, that are maybe closer to unions in, like, commercials and stuff, where there's a lot of sitting around. <laughs> there's a lot of, like, not working and just trying to, like, hope for the day to end soon. You know, I, I don't want to feel like that when I'm shooting um, films, you know? When I'm on set and when I'm making films and when I'm doing these tests, I'm really, like, fully in my element. I remember sitting under that tree and thinking, like, you know, I'm like a child. I'm just sitting here playing with this camera, looking at, like, lighting and stuff. And I'm super excited to go grade this footage. And it and it felt like playing. But it was work. And it was, in ways, a, a lot of really technical work. But I felt so comfortable doing it. Whereas if I was on a big set waiting... You know, like watching a door or waiting for like the sea sand to not fall over or something. I'm like, I'd be thinking and, and hoping to go play under the tree in a weird way. So I'm kind of like talking about the benefits of not not doing the professional way of doing it, but kind of being a, a dilettante and being the, a complete amateur and learning everything on your own. There's benefits to that and, and it gives you a lot of kind of peace of mind. Yeah, totally. Uh, so I'll tell a story. I remember I first moved to Vancouver and you were actually one of the first people I met, but we didn't start like really working together right away. So I went out and I got a cooking job and uh, I remember, you know, you'd meet people in, in these jobs and they'd be like, well, you know, what brings you to Vancouver? I'm like, oh, I want to work in movies. It's like, oh, you should check out IOTSI. And a bunch of people told me that and I'm like, IOTSI, how do you spell that? And no one could fucking tell me. Like, no one. <laughs> so I went home and I tried a bunch of different combos and I typed in, like, film unions and stuff, and I couldn't find anything about IOTSI. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of let that go. And then I was writing and everything, and, you know, fast forward a little bit, you and I start working together, we're making our own movies and stuff. And then it, this thought had hit me of, you know, if I had found IOTSI, and there was a chance to go work in that environment, I would have done it. A, because it would be like, you're working in film, and that's what I wanted to build towards. And B, I know myself, and if I get a good-paying job, it's really hard for me to walk away from it. Like, when I quit Pepsi in Ontario to move to BC, walking away from that level of money was a hard thing to do. But I ultimately, I was really happy because, you know, I'm happy you're making movies now even if i'm not doing well financially than mm -hmm. i was when i was doing really well financially with pepsi but i hated my life so i came to realize like through this thought experiment that had i gotten into iotsi i know exactly what would have happened i would have stayed working these like 18 hour days you know maybe as a grip or whatever it was but i would have worked 18 hour days I would have loved the money and i would have gotten addicted to that money to be honest mm -hmm. i probably would still be doing it right now I never would have had time to write. I never would have had time to make my own stuff. And you and I wouldn't be making this podcast right now. What we don't say would never exist. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, we'll take these two things and, you know, what, what's better? 
there's arguments to be made for both. And, you know, maybe if I had kids and I had to support in a mortgage, then maybe the IELTS route would be what I wanted. But like, I'm pretty happy right now. You know, we have a movie that just released. Um, people are watching it. They're really enjoying it. I feel like I'm coming, like I'm ascending into who hopefully I'm going to be as a filmmaker. And, you know, obviously working with you is just excellent. So given the two, like I'm pretty happy with how this has turned out. And I think that's something that if people are thinking like, oh, I'll go work on sets, even if it's just PAing, like PAs can work 18, 20 hours a day. Just know that, you know, there are things you're giving up to go do that as well. And if you're looking to be strictly on the creative side of things, maybe that'll work out really well. Maybe you'll be a grip, you'll meet a writer. They'll say, I really dig you, come be a writer's assistant. But odds are, probably not. So, you know, what are you better off doing? Yeah, I, I'm I'm really, it really depends on the person, of course. But I'm, I'm you know, the, the downsides of it, obviously, I, I should probably mention are, you live on the fringes of society, you know, like uh, financially, it's not very uh, glamorous, but you have to be willing to make that sacrifice in a way. Like I'm, I'm very, very uh, basic in terms of my lifestyle. Like my, indul my indulgences are coffee. <laughs> coffee is like one of my big, my big spends. And that's like, it's now gone from like, Starbucks and I've even downgraded to much lower grade coffees that are that cost like two dollars maybe <laughs> so um you know you're really living on the fringes I I live kind of um paycheck to paycheck I live in a in a gig society where I have to like find work every now and then and sometimes there's not that much work I don't travel much I don't vacation much I don't get to spend money on a lot of things I have many many pants that have holes in them and buying a new pair of pants is a luxury for me. Um, you know, you're, you're really living humbly in a way, but you know, to, to quote Frederick Nietzsche in a ironic quote, and I, I don't say this is true for all people, but you know, to, I want paraphrasing here, but to a, a man who's not got at least two thirds of his day to himself is a slave to, you know, society in a way um and i'm not saying that's true for everyone and we all have to make money and work but i have a lot of free time to do things that i like um obviously there are times when i get busy and i have to work for a couple of weeks but i do have a lot of time where i just sit on my butt <laughs> and i just think and just think about stuff and i think about ideas or i get to watch movies and and that's really been super beneficial for my you know personal well-being um, it's afforded me time to write a lot. It's afforded me time to spend time with, you know, friends and family. It gives me time to, you know, do this podcast. You know, I can go for walks as I please. I don't have to wake up super early every day. I can get a full nights of, you know, sleep. And it, overall, I'm so much calmer. You know, I'm very, in a way, you know, embracing like a stoic demeanor. I don't get stressed out that much. I don't get angry that much. I don't get overly excited. It's very like, it's cool. Like life is very chilled out and time seems to pass a little slower. And, and that's kind of one of the benefits of not having to work so many hours and so long. And when you work on movie sets, it's the extremes. Like you work way longer than anyone else does. So I get really, really 
um, anxious about like taking on like full-time work or doing anything like that because it takes away from my own personal time. Um, and although it's obviously financially um, a little rough, like I'm, I'm not spending tons of money. I don't need to buy a bunch of stuff or I don't need to like have a super fancy apartment to myself or something. Um, in a way, if you're able to kind of live that way, it affords you a lot of peace of mind. And I think that's kind of a benefit, but it depends on how much importance you put on money and status. Yep. Yeah. I could not agree more with all of that, especially the pants thing. Mm. I've got two pairs of jeans right now. They both have uh, holes in the crotch. I was like, when are you going to get pants? I'm like, when I have money. She's like, well, you know, it's just like 40 bucks. I'm like, yeah, but I could spend that $40 on making a movie. And when you make those little concessions, like it's only this, it's only that, you know, those will pile up to be an entire movie budget one day. So I'm happier spending those that money on making movies than I am if I had, you know, nice pants and a car and all this extra shit. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, having a car and all that stuff, it's very useful, of course. But, like, having a good pair of pants is a very, like, reasonable thing. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I'm not someone that I'm, – I'm not, like – Oh, you know, it, it doesn't matter to me what I look like. I like to dress nice. You know, I like to have a nice pair of shoes and some, you know, comfortable but like stylish pants and a, a nice shirt. Like I like to dress up a little bit and and look presentable when I go outside. But sometimes it's that difficult to do that. You know, I have a nice pair of shoes. There's now a hole formed in my shoes and I'm like, ah, man. But it's like, <laughs> it's the only pair of shoes I ever wear out. And that's why there's a hole in them. So... <laughs> Obviously, like, there's there's little, like, annoying things like that, but it's really not that bad. Um, you get used to it. And I'm hoping to get a nice pair of pants once it's safer to go to stores. Um, but in many ways, like, I spend so much time by myself that it, I don't have to worry too much about, like, looking like Brad Pitt in front of everyone. Latif, you always look like Brad Pitt, buddy. I don't know if that's a compliment, because he's... Very old. <laughs> Latif, you look like an old guy. <laughs> you always look like an old guy. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, as far as topics of this uh, this episode, I think I'm pretty much spent. Do you have anything else to add? No. No. No, not really. I, I think that's pretty good. I mean... I'm doing a lot better now, so it, it. I'm not. It's not to say that choosing this kind of like freewheeling, time to yourself kind of lifestyle is going to stay permanent. You know, I I do better financially every year. Um, you know, I get more work, I get more experience, I get paid a little better because I can ask for more. Um, you know, for different gigs and different projects. And I, I do have like a small marketing agency that, you know, throws me work like every every few months, like I'll get a bigger project to work on. But it never, ever eats away at my time. Um, and I'm still able to kind of maintain this kind of freedom to work on things as I please. You know, that's why I'm able to work on what we don't say to that capacity where I can take all those jobs on because I don't have these 
giant obligations to other people. Um, so it gets better and it's, you know, it gets better with time. It's not going to just be like, Oh my God, I'm eating like macaroni and cheese for six years. It's not going to be like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know, you build resourcefulness, you become better just like living as a person in a way. Um, there's, there's lots of benefits to having a little more money, of course. You know, you get to experience things a little differently, but I think like the simple pleasures, the small things, the the humble life, they really benefit the filmmaker because it allows you to mentally be a little, you know, less anxious. Because if you're always working, worrying about money um, and worrying about getting more money, it kind of like messes you up in a weird way. Whereas like when you make peace with just having enough money just to get by and that's okay, you don't think about it so much and then everything else becomes a little more easy and you can focus more on your, your actual like practice. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I'll throw this last question at you um, before we leave. Do you ever think about, you know, like retirement and pensions and all that kind of stuff that, cause I think especially being raised in North America, everyone's kind of pre-programmed to think of that kind of stuff. So do you ever? Like, I think it's really responsible to do that, you know? Um, and, and the way our society works is like, you know, I, I was never taught anything about like retirement savings and, um, pension. yeah. The only thing I was taught is that it's important. Yeah. <laughs> but that was it. <laughs> but it's, it's something that's like, handed to you when you have like a regular job right it's something that's kind of a part of that process but if you work in like gig society or if you're a freelancer or if you're an artist that's not even something you think about because it's not even guaranteed for you um you know if you work in i guess that's one of the benefits of working in the union that stuff is kind of covered because it is more like a regular job but if you're working like if you're living in a way that's on the fringes of society, I guess, like, that's something that's really on you. You don't have to, you you know, you have to save up. You have to worry about all this stuff. But I have to be honest, I haven't really delved into that in a way where I've taken it seriously. Like, I've got a little bit of savings that I have, but I use that for rainy days. Or I use that when I shoot a short film or something, you know? Um, so, in a way that that is kind of scary but it's something you don't really think about because it happens in the future but in a weird way there's also like when you work a regular job for like 40 years you really wear yourself out like a lot you get really tired your body starts to break down mentally you might might be a little more frail because of all the pounding of your soul through the 40 years of work but (laughs) almost in a weird way you might end up a little healthier on the other side if you don't work so much and you kind of like just chill out take it a little easier and focus on on really like um having a stress-free life and, and kind of working as an artist that way you might be healthier when you get to that age you might be able to work a lot longer than other people um, I mean, I, I think of actors and, you know, I don't want to like, I guess, like say that what they do isn't hard work because it's, it's very difficult what they do. Not a lot of people can do what they do. That's why it's a special thing. But, um, you know, a lot of actors, when they get older, they're working 
and you know until like their 80s and they're many times you know depending on the actor very healthy very good shape um obviously there are actors out there with a lot of problems but there's some that are very <laughs> very well off um but i think it's a, a tribute to like the kind of just carefree lifestyle that they have um but i think a lot of artists kind of live in that way I, i've seen artists get older and kind of be very relaxed and able to work you know a lot longer um whereas people who kind of choose to like really go at it for like 40 50 years by the end of it they're just like pooped they're done mm-hmm. um and they need that money but it's also comfortable to have that money so I, these, these are bigger questions to think about i guess yeah absolutely and like i remember oh it must have been a couple of years ago it was kind of i would guess around party stories time someone asked me like well, what are you going to do when you retire? Like, you're not really making money off this right now. And I was like, okay, I know where this question's coming from. I worked for Pepsi for a lot of years. Like I said, I made good money there. I had a, a pension fund or whatever, 501 or whatever that shit is. And I paid it everything, right? And my answer was like, well, I don't want to retire. I want to do this till I die. I, I love this. So I'm like... The choice of grinding it out in a job for 40 years, I know that isn't me. And I think to a lot of people listening to this podcast, that isn't them either. So the option of doing that, to me, it, it would just be a complete failure. Just to me. Like, there's people that go out there and do it and they're happy. Power to you. Right on. Good for you. But to me, the ultimate failure I've always had in my mind is like working a job I hate to buy a house I don't want to support kids that are taking all my time so I can't do art. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So to me, being in the situation where I am now, it's like, yeah, it's really uncertain. And if you let it weigh on you a lot, it will be daunting. It's like, you know, if you continue not making good enough money, you will never be able to retire. And I'm like, but I'm stoked for that because I, I never want to retire. I hope... When I die, I've got six projects in development and these scripts are amazing and I've made all this art that people can look to and say he did that and not be like, you know, he worked in a factory for 40 years and then he retired and then he did some traveling and then he died. Like, that's not me. And I think to a lot of filmmakers, that's not them either. And having the courage to say that is is a big deal, I think, to a lot of people. Yeah, and I, I'm speaking, you know, when I speak about this, it's personal. Like, for me, this is, you know, my choice to kind of work and live the way I do. I don't yeah. I don't think a lot of people could, because um, I have a very, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm privileged to have a very interesting life set up for myself in a, in a way that, you know, I've kind of molded things to my favor. Um, uh, and it's taken a lot of, like, sacrifices and and you know letting go of pleasures that most people i guess would be able to appreciate whereas i I have to live very humbly but you know in in a way it's completely my choice to do it and i think everyone's got to define their version of success to themselves and not based on what other people think i think that's like the big problem even when we choose to do things we think too much about what other people would think and the reality is no one's thinking about you. <laughs> no one's yep. thinking about you. Everyone's thinking about themselves. 
and everyone's thinking about themselves. And the first thought is, what do people think about? The reality is, no one's thinking about you. Everyone's thinking about themselves. Just do what you want to do. Don't do what you think other people will be um, approving of. And I, I'm, I'm really like, uh, not saying one is good or the other because I think if you choose to work a regular job and have a family and kids, that might be exactly what you're looking for. You might have that as a dream for yourself um, to have a very kind of like sweet, normal life, which I think is very honorable. Um, I just, I just know for myself, I have this weird urge inside of me to make films um, and to make art. And it's just something that I don't think I can, you know, stamp out with like a idea of like a normal life. Um, to me, this is the normal life. I, I, to me, this is like the only thing I can do. Like I've said, you know, I can't even hold down a job at Subway. I'm not good enough for that. <laughs> um, so really, I feel like I'm kind of where I should be. But for anyone who's working a regular job and, you know, making a livable wage and trying to do things on the side, I think that's a very honorable way of doing it as well you just have to know which one is right for you but also try the other side and see how it works because you know because i've done the job the not film job and making just enough to to be okay to have somewhat of a normal life and i've really disliked it so i went to the opposite end and you know quit subway (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's a great place to end the episode. So until next week, I'm Matt Ralston. And this is Latif. And this has been brought to you by ACAST, their podcast hosting service. It's cheap and awesome. Mm-hmm. And we'll see you guys next week. Sweet. Oh, yeah. And the film is out on uh, Google Play oh, yeah. and YouTube now. Google Play, YouTube movies. Yeah, it it's pretty well... Aside from Netflix, and I think we're still waiting on iTunes. It's live most places now. Uh, in America, it's live tons and tons of places. Mm. Canada, your best bet is either Google Play or if you want to support us a bit more, Vimeo. Mm-hmm. We get a m- much larger percentage of the proceeds from Vimeo, and it's going to cost you the same as it would on Google Play, so it doesn't have any impact on you. Or get the if DVD. You, <laughs> yeah, DVD. You can get worldwide. Um we're actually doing fairly well DVD wise. Even a couple sold in Europe, which I was like, okay, right on. That's rad. <laughs> and then if you're overseas, um, I'm pretty sure Google Play is worldwide. Vimeo will be worldwide as well, I believe. But bottom line, uh, wherever you are in the world, as long as you have a good internet connection or you want to purchase a DVD, you can watch what we don't say. Yeah, and if you're in Vancouver and you go to Black Dog Video. We now have it in two Black Dog Video stores in Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, you can rent our movie. From a video store. I was really happy about that just because I yeah, go there too. a lot. So it's cool that they have one of our films now. You should creepily start hanging out there and just like hovering around our DVD. And when people pass by, I'd be like, oh, have you heard about this movie? That oh. is really, really good. No, I'll just I'll take it out and put it back in the shelf as people walk by like, man, that was good, and just walk away and see what they do. <laughs> <laughs> Even better. Yeah. That'll be fun. All right. But yeah, watch what we don't say, and um next week we'll talk to you guys here. Cool.
Bye.